everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have UC Davis law professor Irene Joe. Welcome to our show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So when people actually view this, it'll uh, be a few weeks from now, but Today's kind of a big day because uh, President Biden just announced the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer and that he will be replacing Justice Breyer with a Black woman. Uh, so what, what's your reaction to that news? It's, it's really exciting news. It's wonderful. It's been a long time coming. I'm glad that he's sticking with his campaign promise. I believe he made right before the South Carolina primary. Uh, indicating that that's what his position should uh, should an opening arise on the Supreme Court. Um, I'm also just really excited because the, the names that are being sort of thrown out there as being on the short list are, are just really um, wonderful, wonderful names, uh, extraordinary people, uh, some of whose careers I've followed for years, even before I got to law school. And, and so the thought that, that they'll continue to make history and, and do good work uh, on the Supreme Court is just a, it's a really exciting thing about the future. So tell us a bit about yourself and uh, kind of your background. Sure. Uh, so as you, as you said, my name is Irene. I, um, uh, I grew up in Texas. I was born in Nigeria, uh, uh, moved here to the States when I was about three years old, grew up in Texas. I went to the University of Texas at Austin for undergrad and then um, straight through to Stanford University School of Law for law school. Right after law school, I was uh, fortunate enough to do a, uh, a fellowship with the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, where we represented people on um, Alabama's death row. And we also started a campaign on behalf of, of kids sentenced to life in prison without parole, uh, a campaign which uh, you know, I'm very happy to see ha- has, has, has achieved some success in the, in the last few years. Uh, with the Supreme Court both saying that um, juveniles couldn't be sentenced to life without parole for um, non-homicides and that they shouldn't be sentenced under a mandatory scheme. Um, Just sort of taking into account some of the things I think we all knew intuitively at the time that um, Brian Stevenson and the other attorneys in the office started this campaign that that kids are different (laughs) and and our our sentencing scheme, our criminal justice system should recognize that. Um, After that, I clerked, I was fortunate enough to clerk for a federal judge in San Diego, the Honorable Napoleon Jones Jr. And then I, I got word that they were building a public defender's office from scratch in New Orleans, Louisiana. 
And I thought to myself, um, you know, as much as I loved working and living in Montgomery, Alabama, actually, uh, how often do you get to be involved at the ground level uh, to build a public defender system from scratch? And so um, I went to New Orleans and I was part of the, the first you know, few groups of attorneys uh, helping uh, to sort of lead and direct and change, build the first um, you know, full-time institutional public defender client-centered office in New Orleans. Um, I did that for a few years. It was a, it was a difficult but great experience. Um, through it all though, at every second, um, precisely because we were trying to build something, um, I had all these questions that kept developing. You know, why are we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? Have we thought about this consequence? Why doesn't um, you know, our office operate like this? Uh, and uh, at some point, the State Public Defender Board for Louisiana, the Louisiana Public Defender Board, um, you know, heard about some of my questions, and my ideas um, as, as a supervisor in the office and asked me to join them as their assistant training director. Uh, so I spent some time as their assistant training director, both training public defenders, investigators, support staff throughout the state and then in other states upon invitation. Um, and uh, also thinking some more about how the system should operate. Um, you know, randomly, I had never thought about being a law professor for a number of reasons, including you know, I'd, I'd, I'd never had a law professor that looked like me, you know, so it wasn't, you know, an image that, you know, came forefront. Um, uh, the, the professors I had at Stanford and that I were close to, um, professor, uh, particularly Professor Banks, were extraordinary, but, you know, they didn't come from my background as, a, you know, an, uh, an immigrant that, you know, didn't grow up with the, the most resources and, and, and things like that. So I hadn't thought about that. And uh, I mentioned to a friend of mine, um, Chaz Arnett, who was a public defender as well there, uh, his partner was actually in the process of becoming a law professor. And he said to me, you know, if you have all these questions, that's what law professors do. They, they, they have these questions and they figure out answers. <laughs> and so he convinced me to apply for a teaching fellowship uh, at UCLA School of Law. I was there for about three years, developing my scholarly identity, starting to, to ask these questions and finding some answers. And then was fortunate to get a, a tenure track job at UC Davis um, in 2016. And um, I just recently achieved tenure. <laughs> and so that's uh, a very uh, long winded way of saying that uh, my road, it, it, it feels like it was windy, but I, I guess when you see it from step by step, it sort of seems like natural would have flowed that way. Um, that, that's a, an amazing story though. Uh... <laughs> Uh, I, I'm kind of curious because, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, New Orleans. What was it like post-Katrina and uh, what was, you know, the criminal system like at that point? Oh, wow. You know, I, gosh, New Orleans is just an extraordinary city, right? There's, there, it moves with, uh, I think, a beat and a rhythm of hope and um, and a love for life that it just it just gets into your bones when you're there. Um, the system itself, the criminal justice system, I think there was a lot of attention because you know the reason it decided to uh, or the, sort of the attention that came upon, from Hurricane Katrina is what led to the development of the new public defender office. You know, during the storm, you know, after the, the months after as the city tried to rebuild, you know, you were hearing all these stories about. Uh, the system that had been in place before, somebody couldn't hire an attorney, right? It was a appointed, uh, a managed assigned sort of counsel system where they would appoint private attorneys. And so you hear from clients 
um, what I consider horror stories is someone that understands constitutional criminal procedure <laughs> uh, about how, you know, their court appointed attorney said they didn't have time to develop a motion or write a motion or submit a motion uh, for a bond reduction out of their allotted public defender time. But if their if the indigent defendant would pay them, they could do it out of their private attorney time, which just, it just sort of blows my mind, right? And then there were stories about people couldn't find where their attorneys were. You didn't know what prisons or what jails they were housed in. People were incarcerated for much longer than was statutorily permitted uh, per the charge that they were facing and things like that. And so what the state did, there was so much attention from really great attorneys that were actually not even uh, all criminal related attorneys um, they said, we got to do something different. And so they abolished the previous system and they created a statewide board, which, which was tasked with regulating public defender services throughout the state. And one of the, the first things that board did was create this full-time office in New Orleans. And so that's where I started. Um, and uh, being on the ground there, I think there was just a lot of new energy, right? Um, a number of us were coming from out of state. A number of us had never lived in New Orleans before. And so we were, you know, experiencing the rush and excitement of getting, growing to love the city as, as I think anybody who visits puts would. But also, you know, facing some of the pushback that comes with trying to create something new that um, just wasn't the norm before and, and, and isn't easy, right? You know, all of a sudden you had uh, situations where I think some judges, they were used to having the, the court appointed attorney just do whatever the judge needed to, to get the case to move along. But now that we were part of this full-time office and we had the backing of our, our senior attorneys and our, our chief, uh, Derwin Button, you know, we could, Button, we could, um, we could fight back. I'll always, I remember one story about a judge. I, I was in court. Uh, I'd come to court because I had an arraignment. Basically, I just had to enter uh, a plea of not guilty on behalf of a client. And um, I came, you know, as was usually the case back then, you never know what time the judge is going to call your matter. So I think I probably got there at about 8 or 8.30, um, maybe about 9.30 or 10. All of a sudden, the judge um, points out that somebody is here on a misdemeanor domestic abuse battery case. And it's set for trial. They had a private attorney, um, but apparently they didn't pay their private attorney. And so now they were there alone. And so the judge asked a few preliminary questions, determined that the person couldn't afford an attorney anymore and appointed our office. Uh, and so I, you know, I stood up, I said, Your Honor, yes, if you find the defendant indigent, uh, I'll accept the appointment and we'll set the trial out for, I'm not sure what time I said, um, but probably at least two months or something like that. And the judge said, no, 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 you're going to trial today. That's what we do here. Um, I said, I'm sorry, Your Honor, no, we're not. <laughs> and, um, and it ended up being quite a battle with the judge because he insisted I go to trial on this domestic abuse battery case that um, uh, uh, for a client who I had just met, knew nothing about the case, and I refused. And so the judge then detained me, <laughs> which I always think was the, the funniest part when I tell my students about that, I always think I'm sitting in the back. <laughs> um, so it's, it's just the whole, it's, I shouldn't say it's just the holding cell, it's the, it's the holding cell, the client that I had actually come for sitting there too. And we're just like all looking at each other. And I remember telling my students, I say, you know, what kept running through my mind the entire time was my mom is going to be so mad at me <laughs> that I went off to Stanford Law School and then I end up in jail in New Orleans. Um, but as this, as I said, you know, uh, this, it was a different, it was a new day in New Orleans, right? And so the chief of trials at that time, Kendall Green, came down and basically argued 
for my release, right? Um, and so I did not go to trial that day. I remember the judge very upset because he kept saying, oh, you know, this is just a misdemeanor. If this was an armed robbery, he was looking at 99 years, I'd understand, but it's just a misdemeanor. And I said to the judge at that point, you know, our Sixth Amendment right to the effective assistance of counsel doesn't distinguish between that in that way, between those kinds of charges. And so it's not, it's, it's not lost on me that some of my first projects as a law professor are about the importance of misdemeanors and how we should be recognizing that importance and the consequences of those. Um, the other thing I tell students about that, so one of my areas of expertise is also legal ethics, is that um, the hardest part for me, it wasn't, you know, of course I was, I was worried about embarrassing my mom and dad, but I, you know, I knew what the law required and I knew what my integrity said I could do, but the hardest part for me is the client didn't quite understand what was going on. And so, you know, as the judge kept telling him, look, your lawyer won't do your trial. Your lawyer won't represent you. As I'm trying to explain to him why I'm not going to go to trial for him today, um, it was just the, the sort of the confusion uh, uh, was present. And at some point, he said he was just going to represent himself. Uh, and, and the court asked me to consider, to, to well, ordered me to sit with him as co-counsel. And I again refused because I knew nothing about the case and I wasn't going to sort of imprint it with any sort of legitimacy or constitutionalism. Um, and so the case was reset for another day. Um, but I often think about that client and how he must have felt to think that, you know, his lawyer wouldn't do her job, even though I was doing what the Constitution and our system of legal ethics would require of us. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, we've in the past, we had a journalist who covered uh, the Katrina Bridge shooting, um, where the the cops uh, killed this family on the bridge right after uh, Katrina, and and that was an interesting story. And then uh, a few months ago, we had the the newly elected DA in New Orleans, Jason Williams, on our show. So oh, that's great. Jason and I, when I was there, we worked, we interacted often. He was a private attorney at that time, and so he was always very um, engaging. Yeah. So um, I wanted to move on a little bit and, you know, kind of ask you on this question. Um, you know, I, I know you've studied critical race theory, but why has that become such a lightning rod all of a sudden? You know, I think it's, it's really unfortunate, um, but it doesn't surprise me that the response to, um, to the actual uh, openness and uh, you know, presenting and, and showing the evidence <laughs> of, of the racial sort of dynamics and foundations of some of these laws and policies and procedures um, has people in power or people used to, you know, um, power and, and legitimacy um, nervous, right? And upset and pushing back, you know? Um, you know, as I, you know, it's interesting that you bring that question up. Uh, you know, yesterday, I, 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 one of my classes that I'm teaching right now is criminal procedure, and we, uh, we were talking about police officer stops, the Fourth Amendment, searches and seizures and things like that. And I had them working through two cases that are sort of uh, notorious, and one, uh, the Wren case, which basically, which actually does permit racial profiling, right? Um, and as I, I spoke with the students, I said, you know, it's really important for us to have this day where we bring to the forefront the racial bias, discrimination, and, and things that are present 
in these, uh, these uh, constitutional interpretations and this application of the law, right? Um, because that's the only way that we can ever truthfully say that our system is operating with integrity, right? So the way that I defined integrity for them is that it's when what you say and what you think and what you do are consistent. Um, and so if we wanna say that our criminal process operates with integrity, then what it says it is, <laughs> What it claims to be trying to do and what it actually does has to be consistent, right? And you'll see the inconsistencies, uh, particularly based on race and class and under and other marginalized um, uh, characteristics. Um, and, and, and everybody will just, you know, those who aren't willing to interrogate the system and call, call uh, and, and ask for more from it, um, we'll just say that's how it always has to be. That's just how it is. That's something, it's somebody else's fault, something like that. Um, but so I really encourage them to, to look deeper and to, to not be afraid to point out those problems. Um, and, and because that's the only way that we'll be able to build something that we can be truly, truly proud of. Um, it just seems like this is one of those things that people don't understand and because they don't understand it, uh, right into the term. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it might be a part of understanding, but it also could be that they understand it very well. And they understand that if, if they accept it as truth and legitimate, that it calls into question some of their sort of baseline behaviors and their, their, their thoughts and beliefs about the system, about who's criminal and what is criminal, right? That's the other conversation I have often with my students is how are we defining criminal law and how much of the system, how much of, of criminal procedure by its very nature is about discrimination. And we say, or we could use the word discernment, right? Because so much of it is separating the good from the bad. And we can't ignore that we are in a country that historically, right, has had this practice of defining one group of people as more bad and another with different qualities or different characteristics as more good. Um, and so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that our criminal process reflects that natural tendency. And what we should do instead is recognize that nature and try to figure out ways to combat it, right? Um, but part of recognizing that nature and combating it is that Certain people, certain thoughts and certain beliefs and certain um, systems of oppression and certain systems of privilege um, will, will feel attacked, right? Um, and will feel undermined. They're not willing to let that go. So what do you tell your students? <laughs> uh, I tell them, let me know how it goes. No, I say, <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I, I tell them, you know, you know, one of the things I tell them is that I don't identify myself as an abolitionist, right? I'm not quite there yet, right? Like my entire work portfolio is about building up the public defender, um, building up the institutions that should help the public defender do its job well. So there's a part of me that believes that this process could work. That could be a naive thought. One of my, my good friends, Chaz, the one that encouraged me to go into academia, insists that one day I'm going to write an article called Abolish the Public Defender because I'll just realize that everything I'm asking for just can't happen. Or that, as Paul Butler would say, it's operating exactly as it was designed to operate, right? Um, 
you know, but I, so I say that though, although I don't identify myself as an abolitionist now, I am open to the ideas, right? I'm open to learning more about it and, 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 and seeing if maybe that is the only option. But in order to, 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 to get me there to, or to cement my feelings one way or the other, um, I think they've got to be able to speak about it from a place of both knowledge, but also openness, right? And so one of the things I suggest to them is that, you know, provided it's, it, they do it in a healthy way, because I do, I think it's important for them to, you know, I don't want to tell them what to do or who to engage with, especially if it's about speaking with populations that could be, you know, emotionally harmful. But to the extent that they're able to speak to people that aren't like them, able to express and concern, uh, you know, express their concerns uh, um, to people who wouldn't necessarily agree with them, who don't see the world through the same lens as they do. Um, I think that would be the sweet spot. I think that's the only way that we achieve change, whether or not the change is a complete abolition of the system or uh, the change is actually funding and supporting and building up the public defender like you claim um, that you do. So speaking of which, um, one of the things you've looked at is uh, the, uh, the issue of public defender caseload. And I was just reading uh, about LA, um, which you, know, it, you would think of and probably in the scheme of things is pretty well-funded public defender system. And yet, you know, they're saying that they're representing 125 clients a year. Um, you know, how, how do you represent uh, 125 people at once? You don't, <laughs> you don't. And you know, that's some of the issues that we ran into in New Orleans. There were times when my caseload was over 200. There were times when I was doing mostly misdemeanors, my caseloads were around 400. Some of the attorneys throughout the rest of the state, when at the time I was assistant public defender, the numbers they would give us were near a thousand, right? The truth is that you just, you don't, right? And, and there's some ideas about, well, you know, you pick and choose which clients deserve or get the sort of the, the deeper representation and others sort of get this pattern form representation, um, the very basics you can provide. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I hope, I hope you don't have to do that, right? The thing is you shouldn't do that, right? Our laws, our constitution says you should not do that, right? And so, um, you know, I've been reading a little bit, I'm looking forward to learning more about what's going on in LA, um, but the, the conversations I've had with other public defender systems about their caseloads um, sort of involve, you know, really taking a look at, um, you know, uh, how, how they're, or how they're counting their caseloads, how they're assigning their cases um, and things like that um, to, to really get a clear handle on what would be a manageable caseload first and then sticking with that no matter what, as much as you can. But then you've also got to have the support from your leadership. So one of my projects was uh, structuring the public defender. We try to look at how different states managed the public defense function, how they, how they managed to provide services to, to individuals who cannot afford to, to, to pay for their own lawyer. And different states do it differently. Some do it through the executive branch, right? So it's basically an executive function. Some do the judicial branch, so it's judicial function. Some do it like California, don't do it really through either branches. It's individual counties that are responsible for thinking through how best to fund the services. Um, 
that each each of those come with their own drawbacks. I think each of those come with their own you know positives as well. Um, but regardless of the system you have, there has to be something in place where there is a leader, a representative of the public defender institution that has the same sort of power and ability and authority to, to demand um, uh, that the public defender can do its job that we would sort of see when it comes to judges or prosecutors or police or something like that. There's a, uh, a case that comes to, to mind, uh, Anthony Ray Hinton, uh, who, who finally got released after what, 43 years or some ridiculous amount of time. Um, and he was on death row in Alabama. And um, he was represented by an appointed attorney because they didn't have public defenders. Um, and the first time he met the attorney, the attorney comes in and he goes, I'm only getting $1,000 to represent you. And I eat $1,000 for breakfast. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, what a surprise the guy ends up getting wrongfully convicted and uh, almost executed and, uh, you know, spends decades of time in the prison. And, and what's interesting is one of the things that, uh, you know, the Vanguard does is we have court watches around the state of California. One of the places we have it is in San Francisco. And so, you know, we get to watch uh, some of the best public defenders in the world in San Francisco, and they like fight every single case, like misdemeanor case. You know, they have like this policy that they're not going to settle. Um, so, so they're taking like misdemeanor cases to trial and they're filing motions to suppress in every single case. And so, you know, which is great, right? That, that's like what you want. But, you know, if you're not in San Francisco, even in places like California, you know, this, this tremendous unequal justice uh, that we see just in the level of representation, you know, compare Anthony Ray Hinton to the average person in San Francisco and you just see this world of difference. No, no. And I, I think that the, in, I think in every jurisdiction, in every county, in every system of public defender representation, you can find really quality attorneys who will fight and will go to bat for their client, who will respect their client's expressed interests, right? And, you know, and, 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 and really push that forward. Um, you can also in every county and every jurisdiction find attorneys who have, um, who, 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 know, who might just be doing it for the thousand dollars or who might just be doing it because they're, uh, you know, assigned a case or might just be doing it because it's a job, right? And I, I think what our goals should be, those of us who are trying to reform um, the system or trying to just think through how we could operate better and with more integrity is to develop and think through how we can better supervise and, and, and check on, our, on the attorneys that do the cases um, make sure that they're in it sort of for the right reasons, to, to quote a, uh, a colloquialism, um, and that they're doing the type of job that the Sixth Amendment and our professional rules responsibility would require of them. And one of the projects that I'm, I'm working on right now is, is trying to figure out how um, public defender systems or the appointed counsel system for Asian clients can learn from 
you know, previous cases that they've handled um, that may have been overturned on appeal, right? Or that were subject to complaints later on. There's not much of a, in some ways the, the, the public defenders seem, can seem sort of brittle, right? Because you got to get the job done with this client and you move on to the next one. And there's not enough time and built in to really reflect on how things went with that client. You know, when you think of, of you know, some of the, the higher end sort of employer, um, you know, client relationships or things like that, there's usually a reflection, like an exit interview, right? <laughs> a reflection period where you can see, okay, this went right, this went wrong, this is something we might consider for the future. Um, you know, my hope is to try to think through what something like that would look like for the public defender, and then also see if our professional rules responsibility would require them, right? We, we have a basic fundamental requirement of providing competent and skilled representation. And I, I think that all of us would believe, or most of us would sort of uh, su you know, support the idea that part of providing competent services is learning from how you've done it in the past <laughs> and, uh, and what you could do better, what you could uh, do differently going forward. Um, and then going back to a point you made earlier, you, you mentioned that you weren't an abolitionist yet. And I'm not either. Um, although, you know, I, I've, I've gotten to the point where I believe most defenses don't need um, incarceration. And I think, uh, I think incarceration is counterproductive most of the time. Uh, but on the other hand, there are people that definitely do need to be locked in a cage because that's the only way to protect us. I just think that number is very small, much smaller than we have uh, today. Uh, you know, from your perspective, if you could like wave your magic wand, um, <laughs> what do you see as the biggest problem with the criminal legal system and what do you see the solution as? Oh, that's a great question. Well, you know, I know I'll start off to saying I know that the abolitionist framework sort of uh, a, a number some versions of it sort of include this um, idea of the dangerous few, right? So there are going to be the, the dangerous few that could still be, uh, you know, that still would warrant some kind of state supervision, um, even in that abolitionist framework. But just how to go about that, how to develop it, what the system should look like, I think is what they're addressing. Um, you know, for me, maybe unsurprisingly, the, the thing that, that drives me most, the thing that I think about all day long that I'm always trying to, to, to work through is, is public defenders, right? How do we support them? You know, I, um, you know, I was a public defender because of my clients. I think about them fondly. I miss, that's probably what I miss most about being an academic. I miss running into clients or client families just out in the streets of New Orleans, right? I, I, I miss that. Um, but I do this work as an academic because I'm trying to figure out how we can better support the attorneys that do the work for indigent defendants, right? How can we, you know, how can we put them in a position where they feel like they're doing the type of work that they wanted to do, that they're passionate about, that they have the resources and the tools to get it done? How can we support that? Because I do think there's something, um, you know, just be sort of a, a child, but just something beautiful about that, um, that idea that somebody, you know, a professional could, you know, could believe so much in, in the rights of a complete stranger 
maybe somebody that's completely very differently situated, different experience from them, so much that they will go to Baton Court, stand up before the power of the state, right? The power of the government and represent them and their interests and make a space for their voice, their identity, their, their very, you know, selves, their spirit to be seen. Um, I like that. I, I think that's a beautiful uh, part of the American story, uh, but I, I think it's not, it's, it's not being fulfilled in the way that it was designed to be fulfilled. And, and I think if we did, uh, we would see something very different uh, in the system and maybe start down the road um, to having a system that we can really fully support wholeheartedly. Yeah, and I think you said something very important that a lot of people don't think about is that, you know, when you are caught in the criminal legal system, uh, you know, you are facing the power of the government, the full force of the government with guns and everything. And and a lot of people don't think about it that way. And, and so they don't think about, you know, putting themselves in that position. They're like, well, I would never be in that position. Well, I can tell you, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of people that were wrongly convicted who never thought that they had ever done a thing wrong in their life. And they ended up on the other side of that. And so, you know, until people can kind of put themselves into that uh, framework, I think, you know, they don't see the value and the importance of having a strong public defender system. I did want to ask in the last couple of minutes, um, you know, we had uh, a few months ago, Jonathan Rapping from uh, Gideon's <laughs> Promise on. Uh, ha have you uh, encountered him and his work? Of course. So Rapp was one of the attorneys who trained me. <laughs> so I was in one of the first inaugural classes of uh, Gideon's Promise. And so I very much come from the rap model of client-centered representation. I, sorry, Jonathan Rapping, we call him, most, a lot of us call him Rapp, but he and his wife, uh, Illy, are just extraordinary people. The sort of the team they pull together, the project they pull together, um, Gideon's Promise and what it does for the attorneys, what it did for me <laughs> as, a, as an attorney starting off, uh, was it's just really invaluable. It's something uh, you can't, um, uh, that, uh, I'm just glad that they had the vision for it. I'm glad that they have put the time into it. And, and I'm glad that so many people have been able to benefit from it. Um, you know, as I said, I always feel like my career started off. I was very, very fortunate. I started off my career and uh, you know, I, get, I got to start off learning from Brian Stevenson and the attorneys and the people that he pulled together there and the clients and that that office had. Um, you know, that was my very first job out of law school. And then I went to, 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 to work for Judge Napoleon Jones Jr., who's just who was just a he's, he's since passed, but he was just a phenomenal, phenomenal person. And then I got to go learn how to be a public defender from Jonathan Rapping and and all of the attorneys and people that he had pulled together to teach us how to to be sort of model public defenders and be part of his army, uh, going out to really do something about um, people who were very marginalized. Well. I, I gotta say, I'm envious. Ah, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Um, thanks so much for coming on our, our show and uh, and sharing some of your experience. Uh, it's really uh, an amazing background, and uh, you've had an amazing journey already. Uh, thank you very much for I'm glad to be a part of this, and thank you for the work that you're doing, getting these messages and this information out there. It's very meaningful.
This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with UC Davis law professor Irene Joe. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.